Thank you for coming. We'll um, get started. Uh, welcome to the Institute of Advanced Studies and welcome back to those of you who've uh, attended our previous seminars. I'm very Apologies for the, the, the various changes to the date and time um, of this event. As I'm sure you're all aware, the, um, the, the, the proposed cuts to university staff pensions have caused um, a lot of disruption this uh, acad academic term. Um, so we're, as a result, we're a bit of, of, of the move, we're a bit more pressed for time this evening as we would um, usually be. We have this room um, for well, just under an hour and a half now, um, but when we finish here, if, if we want to continue, we, we, we do have um, another room, G17, which is just a couple of doors uh, down, where there'll be some, some wine and some soft drinks and uh, maybe even some crisps, so we can continue the discussion informally um, at, at, at that point. Um, so very quickly, to allow Andrew as much time as possible, my name is Peter Leary, I'm a junior research fellow here, I'm a historian of the Irish border and the partition of Ireland and interested in international borders generally, and along with Alison Deutsch, who's at the, the front here, um, we're organising this uh, vulnerability seminar series. Vulnerability, along with lies, is one of our two research themes uh, at the IAS this year, and there are lots of events going on uh, looking at both, exploring both. If you, if you go onto the IAS website, you can find the details there. Over the course of this academic term, uh, we've been discussing vulnerability from a range of angles and disciplinary perspectives, um, exploring the theme of vulnerability alongside stupidity and shame, the law, migration, and precarious work and workers in film. Today I'm very pleased that we have Andrew Gardner uh, with us, but before I hand over to him, I just want to flag up a couple of the events that we have coming up at the start of next term. So on the 25th of April, we're going to have a conversation between Anna Kim, who is an art historian and until recently a visiting fellow here, with two artists, Lola Frost and Edmund Clark, We'll be talking about vulnerability in relation to their art and art practice. Then on the 30th of April, we have a lunchtime event. Um, it's going to be 12 to 1.30 uh, with Anthony Julius, who will be discussing vulnerability and censorship. So I hope that you'll be able to join us for uh, one or other or both of those. They'll be uh, taking place, both taking place in here. Today, as I said, we're very pleased to welcome Andrew Gardner. Um, who's a senior lecturer in, uh, in the archaeology of the Roman Empire at the UCL Institute of Archaeology. His publications include An Archaeology of Identity, Soldiers and, uh, and Society in Late Roman Britain, and Evolutionary and Interpretive Archaeologies, A Dialogue. He's currently working on a monograph on Roman Britain. His research interests are centred upon the social dynamics of Roman imperialism, and the diverse legacies of the Roman Empire in contemporary times. His title uh, this evening, which is my personal favourite of the, the series, is Vulnerability and Post-Imperial Identities from Brexit to Ancient Rome and Back. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction, Peter, and thank you all for coming. Can everyone hear me okay at the back there? Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so what uh, I am going to do is switch PowerPoint, <laughs> first of all, um, and then talk about 
a range of different uh, vulnerable things, I guess. Um, we do live in interesting times, and uh, it's a period which, I guess, in terms of Brexit, certainly makes me feel vulnerable uh, in the sense that things which one had assumed to be set down a certain pathway and had been in place for my entire life are suddenly now vulnerable to change. Um, I'm going to be talking a bit about the vulnerability of the academy at the moment, of, of us here at a university. I'm going to talk about um, the way imperialism works and some of the vulnerabilities that are perhaps a bit unexpected in that process. And I'm going to talk uh, a bit about modern politics and a bit about the archaeology of Roman Britain, so hopefully there's something for everyone. Uh, just to show you uh, these two pictures which I like to juxtapose, there you have Winston Churchill with a gathering of uh, so-called Druids at an early um, 20th century gathering, and uh, our former Mayor of London, now Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, uh, with a gathering of Romans, and uh, or Roman reenactors, of course, I should say. Uh, and uh, this juxtaposes, um, or illustrates, I suppose, the way that uh, politicians and symbols of the past go together and how the latter can be exploited in the interest of the former, which is a significant theme in my talk. So um, what I want to discuss uh, is partly about the role of archaeology, but um, by extension, I suppose, uh, the academy or uh, uh, experts such as ourselves more generally, <clears throat> and I'll say a bit more about that by way of introduction. But um, like I said, actually, this comes, this paper or this, uh, the research that this draws on comes from quite a personal feeling of, of vulnerability, again, about how um, academic archaeologists can make a contribution to the debates of the day, given that the debates of the day hinge upon understandings of the past, discourses about the past, in relation to various imaginary futures. And whether the future is imagined as a bright red shining one, uh, like the bus at the top, uh, or a battered old uh, jalopy, like the one at the bottom, um, how the uh, process of getting to that future relates to the past is what I'm really interested in. And I'm also interested in the role of, again, specifically in my case, archaeologists, but perhaps more generally, uh, academics uh, can uh, contribute to these debates in a way that somehow gets through the barriers that are increasingly um, set about us in doing so. <clears throat> so I'll say a little bit more about that specific theme in a second, just by way of introduction, at the sort of broadest level, and then I want to focus for the majority of my uh, talk today on these two uh, juxtaposed cases of Brexit in relation to British identity and uh, the Roman Empire in relation to Roman Empire, uh, Roman uh, identity, um, as sort of case studies in comparison to do with how empires work and to do with how uh, what one might think of as the kind of core empire, uh, imperial identities, British and Roman, uh, become vulnerable to change and uh, to uh, sort of political transformation. Uh, through the very processes that they initiate by uh, empire building. So, um, by way of introduction, as I said, uh, the theme I want to open with is to do with the place of the academy in uh, the current um, sorts of debates that surround Brexit, among other issues. 
And I think um, we have some significant problems uh, to deal with here. Uh, of course, these are probably very well known to many of you, but just to sort of recap a couple of the key points, uh, obviously uh, we can go back to the famous um, statement uh, uttered by Michael Gove during one of the debates preceding the referendum uh, in 2016 uh, about people of uh, people in this country have had enough of experts. Uh, he was talking at the time, of course, about particularly, uh, specifically economic forecasts surrounding what might happen or not, depending on the result of the referendum. Uh, <clears throat> but that has come to be a real sort of um, uh, benchmark in terms of how uh, expertise is seen in the current debates. And one can trace a thread from that to post-referendum attacks on academia, uh, which are manifest increasingly in a, a really startling array of ways, uh, of course some of which have been very uh, obvious in the last few weeks. Um, but uh, this notorious uh, Daily Mail front page and uh, accompanying um, opportunity to shop your lecturers to the newspaper uh, if they were teaching about Brexit in an unpolitically correct, from their standpoint, way uh, from uh, late last year. And um, so this sort of politicization of higher education is a really significant development. And I think it relates uh, quite closely to um, what is becoming evident as a major trend in recent political uh, events and elections and referenda uh, around the world to do with uh, voting trends mapping onto education, specifically higher education, in terms of its demographic reach. And of course there are lots of variables and there, these are all very complex and locally specific phenomena, but um, this, I point you if you're interested in this towards this article in The Guardian um, now uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, October 2016, nearly a couple of years ago, um, uh, which uh, argues that the expansion of higher education, um, of course in the UK, particularly since the 90s, has led to a, a significant shift um, in the significance of education, higher education specifically, uh, in relation to voting behaviour, and it's opening up a sort of fissure in society uh, where the higher educated and those without higher education are aligned in different directions politically, and there are now so many people with higher education that that is you know, an electorally significant factor. And as a contributing factor to the now quite common theme of a breakdown of roughly 50-50 in major elections from uh, the referendum to um, Trump's election in America uh, and several others uh, around the world. Um, and there's a sort of polarization of society embedded in that, but the fact that education is a big part of that sort of inevitably then leads to the politicization of higher education uh, because it comes to be regarded as threatening to um, some uh, sectors of the population, I guess, that uh, some politicians seek to harness. And you can see that um, pretty clearly in the Brexit uh, referendum results. Of course, it correlates also with age, and that's a factor of the expansion of the higher education system in Britain is that there is a, obviously there's a, a temporal dimension to this, but there you have um, a couple of the various uh, visuals of uh, referendum results. Uh, this is by um, constituency or counting area, uh, showing trends 
in favour of more degree educated people voting uh, or areas with more degree educated people trending towards Remain uh, and the converse for Leave and similarly uh, more uh, 65 plus year olds trending to uh, a Leave vote. And that sort of uh, split uh, where education is a significant factor as I said reflected also in the election of Trump uh, in the US. Uh, this piece from the Pew Research Organization showing um, significant gaps in voting preference by, again, higher education. And uh, of course, uh, you know, again, this in a way needs no uh, rehearsal. It's uh, widely debated these days, but the um, way academia in the US also is being attacked uh, politically uh, is similar to what we've seen in the UK perhaps for similar reasons, uh, and the very nature of expertise is called into question by this in terms not only of um, what people expect of us as academics or as experts, <clears throat> but also what the consequences of our uh, knowledge production, if you want to call it that, are, and whether they are consequential at all. Um, this piece um, in Vox uh, last year, November last year, uh, poses the question, what if um, the Mueller inquiry proves its case and it doesn't matter because truth is no longer, or you know, the results of a systematic investigation are no longer sufficient to change anybody's mind about anything. Uh, there is a significant crisis and vulnerability there for the academy. Um, and in relation to archaeology, I'm particularly interested in how this works because, um, as I said, the past is embedded in a lot of these debates, and I'll illustrate that at greater length in a few moments. Um, but I think there's possibly uh, a significant mismatch between the political identities, if you like, of most practicing archaeologists and the kinds of people who are interested in the past, and it may sort of straddle this fault line. So this um, image here shows the typical person who's interested in archaeology based on uh, the data gathered by YouGov, so YouGov, uh, which is a big polling organization, uh, has a really interesting uh, profiling tool where you can type in a word, any word really, uh, and it will show you, uh, because they gather data on people's interests and, and hobbies, and, and uh, as well as their sort of demographic details, and um, uh, you can sort of characterize uh, a uh, typical person um, who is uh, into particular things. So you could do this for uh, anything, really, as I say. Um, this uh, sort of person is perhaps stereotypical for a British person interested in archaeology. As you can see, it's an older white male. Uh, they mainly, uh, important for the purposes today, are not sort of particularly extreme right, but certainly right of centre on the political spectrum. <clears throat> and I would say, based on, I suppose, mainly personal experience, that most archaeologists um, in the UK do not uh, right of centre, they are left of centre, or possibly quite far left of centre. And so this raises, again, this question of, is uh, the politicisation of higher education also, you know, something that's developing out of the very nature of the subjects we study, the way we study them? Are certain people drawn to certain subjects? Are um, or is the knowledge that we produce inherently politicized in the sense that it points in a certain direction? 
And then if people who don't agree with that direction say that that's political, where do we go with that? Do we say, no, it's not, it's neutral, it's scientific, it's objective, or do we say, well, it kind of is political, but that's because it's, the evidence is pointing us in that direction. I think we have to figure out how to respond to that. Um, and uh, as I say, the reason I think this is all relevant to what I'm talking about today is that um, people's understandings of the past do um, relate both to their education, obviously, and also to their politics, and they have an influence on how they vote and how they behave. Um, this is a it's sort of emerging field of research in a way, the correlations that one can find here, and there is a really interesting project underway um, based in Durham, but with um, uh, one of my colleagues in the Institute, Kira Banaki, as one of the uh, main investigators, uh, researching the way in which, from basically social media data, uh, people relate to the past in relation to political uh, issues, and they've done quite a bit of work around Brexit and uh, the way that Iron Age, Roman and Medieval uh, British identities were invoked on different sides of the debate. Um, so all of that is sort of a preamble to what I really want to focus on, which is the role of ideas about identity uh, in the past as they relate to Brexit, and specifically to how Brexit is a manifestation of a post-imperial situation in the UK. Um, but I wanted to raise these issues because, as I say, I think these all sort of set the scene for, well, in a way, for what I do with this particular piece of research, but also, um, you know, how more generally we can talk about politics in the academy. So, <clears throat> to turn to empire. Um, again, it is uh, hardly sort of... Uh, novel to point out that empire is invoked quite widely in debates around uh, Britain's uh, possibly impending departure from the European Union. Uh, and really since, <coughs> since quite early on, post-referendum, uh, I guess a bit before as well, uh, this has come up in a range of contexts. So um, the idea that uh, uh, what some Leave campaigners uh, who are now government ministers, were arguing uh, in terms of Britain's potential place in the world as a hub of free trading, sort of buccaneering uh, enterprise, harking back to uh, the what they, I suppose, understand to be uh, at least part of the history of the British Empire, hinting strongly that Commonwealth countries would be uh, sort of a big part of that um, new trading um, uh, situation for the UK, uh, and on the other hand, of course, critical articles uh, like this one in The Guardian uh, up there, uh, which points out that uh, there is a, a lot of misconception about uh, the history of the British Empire underpinning these um, sort of claims and aspirations. And a good uh, example of that would be um, the article at the bottom right there, uh, referring to famously uh, uh, another sort of quote uh, from one of the now um, prominent uh, conservative politicians, Andrew Leadsom, uh, that's the basis for British economy post-Brexit might be uh, certain characteristically British things like tea, jam and biscuits, none of which sound particularly compelling economically, but also, of course, tea uh, is a, a good uh, example of what I'm talking about here because it's a 
symbol of being British, obviously, um, but it doesn't, you know, it's not a native product of the UK. Uh, we don't have great tea plantations across the South Downs. Uh, tea is an imperial product. It comes from China and from India, and it is perfectly illust illustrative, really, of the processes I'm talking about today in terms of how things from the colonies, uh, from the frontiers, come to be incorporated into uh, the uh, identity of the sort of uh, the uh, imperial nation, um, and that that process has consequences over the long term for that uh, imperial power. Um, another sort of pointer in this direction is uh, sort of relates to this uh, is a longer term issue to do with the nature of British identity. Uh, and its status in the UK. <coughs> and uh, here uh, is a, a BBC article that goes back actually uh, to 2014, so before the referendum, uh, indeed before the election uh, which initiated the referendum as being an actual thing that was going to happen. This story relates to um, a uh, rugby player who plays for Wales or played for Wales and um, provoked a bit of uh, a, a spat, as it says in the article, uh, about his identity by uh, saying that he was um, happy to be uh, labelled as British, uh, which was um, provoked from uh, at least one uh, Plaid Cymru MP, uh, a charge that this was being disloyal to the notion of being Welsh. Now that's, uh, again, interesting. It's very, um, in a way, unsurprising in the sense that the label of British has uh, become one with quite a lot of political baggage attached to it in terms of its syn synonymity, if that's a word, with Englishness. And of course, in Wales, in Scotland, in parts of Ireland, to be British is to be English, and to be English is to be colonial, effectively, and therefore it's not surprising that some people don't like that label. What's ironic about it is that if you went to what we now call Wales about a thousand years ago, uh, then the people who live there would be called British, and that is where the label starts to sort of uh, gain its currency, and I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. But this sort of thing is um, uh, really significant in terms of the long-term history of identities in the UK. Um, so this is a story that could take uh, a long time to tell because it's a story of um, centuries in the making, but trying to cut it short. Um, as I said, the synonymity of Britishness with Englishness is um, a sort of you know, predictable or, or explainable uh, aspect of the alienation of it uh, from, or from it of people in Scotland and Wales. Um, but this process uh, is the culmination of a sort of reversal of fortune, perhaps, of the label of British, or a transformation of the label of British in relation to uh, Englishness. And that um, process began uh, really with the Anglo-Norman conquest of Wales in the 11th century. Uh, it certainly gained momentum in the period between the 16th and the 18th centuries as uh, Ireland and uh, uh, Wales and Scotland were all united by one means or another with England to form the United Kingdom. 
And it represents quite a deliberate process of appropriation and actually an earlier phase of what I'm also going to be talking about in terms of the, the later British Empire. Um, so if we think of the nascent British Empire really as the English Empire, its first colonies were other parts of the British Isles and Ireland. Uh, those colonies, which because of the earlier medieval history of uh, these areas, uh, were distinguished as British as opposed to Anglo-Saxon, um, those colonies influenced the core, they influenced England, and they did that by renaming it, sort of uh, at the behest of the rulers of that, that state, because to be rulers of their empire, of the British Isles, those English rulers, Anglo-Norman rulers, wanted to say they were the, the rulers of the biggest sort of concept of, of that empire, which was to be rulers of Britain. So Britishness was appropriated as a label by rulers of England, uh, to lay claim to that whole territory legitimately. That is why we have the creation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Um, that uh, process though then continues as the British Empire becomes a world empire with colonies in lots of other parts of the world, which in turn influence the nature of Britishness and which in turn therefore lead to Britishness uh, becoming separate from Englishness, even as it's still widely thought to be synonymous. And um, this is a point that's been made uh, by a few other authors too, and that article at the bottom right there uh, in the New European uh, discusses a similar idea, that um, England has developed into this sort of problematic identity, or Englishness has developed into this problematic identity. And we can see this mapping out in the referendum result as compared to the census uh, data from 2011, which shows us where Britishness uh, is at its strongest and how that correlates with uh, other uh, sort of political forces. So um, on the left here, we've got the map of the uh, census. Now in that 2011 census, <coughs> the um, question was asked what nationality people most strongly identify with, and they could be to pick amongst other options, British uh, as, uh, and uh, English or Irish or uh, uh, sorry, the census covers England, Wales and Scotland, uh, but Scottish, Welsh identity could also be chosen. And uh, you'll see this is uh, people who identify themselves as British. British identity is very strong actually in London uh, and interestingly in major urban centres in the West Midlands and the northwest of England. British identity is very weak, relatively, in the whole of the eastern seaboard of England. Also, unsurprisingly, in Scotland and in parts of West Wales um, and in the southwest. Um, this, I think, is an indicator that British identity is now, and there are other lines of research that suggest this, British identity is now, it's a metropolitan identity, it's one that is uh, influenced strongly by and comfortable with immigration. Uh, it is. A, Therefore, in so far as immigration is also linked to empire, it is very much sort of um, uh, a cosmopolitan identity in a way. And um, its inverse, interestingly now really uh, to be explained, is this English, um, sort of strong English uh, area or set of areas. We know why Britishness is less popular in Scotland, it's because it's associated with England. And the same is true of parts of, of Wales. But why is Britishness not so popular in Eastern England? 
that's interesting. And it's presumably because there is a dislocation between this metropolitan identity and a more rural or small town identity which is um, feeling differently about the world. And that, of course, correlates directly with the uh, referendum results shown on the right there. So this is the Remain share of the vote, uh, showing, of course, as is well known, strong support for Remain in Scotland, uh, parts of Northern Ireland, uh, but otherwise, uh, of course, London, massive uh, Remain Central, uh, and other urban areas generally, uh, pretty pro-Remain, more rural areas, less so, and the strongest Leave voting areas in England are precisely those parts of uh, the eastern seaboard of England and the sort of central parts of the country, East Midlands um, and Central Midlands, which uh, identify most strongly as English rather than British. So there's a correlation between uh, feeling that the European Union is to blame for various problems, which of course, as a Remainer, I would uh, say is a misdiagnosis, but that's uh, perhaps another issue, uh, and feeling um, dislocated also from British identity. And it begs the question of what the problem is with English identity. And of course, this is uh, certainly not a new problem to be uh, raised. In fact, we can go back to the first sort of post-colonial generation uh, if you like, within the UK, uh, writers um, like Tom Nairn and Seamus Heaney talking about the problem of the English in the 70s. <coughs> this quote from Nairn uh, encapsulates quite well uh, what apparently is still the case, really, that the English need to rediscover who and, uh, rediscover who and what they are, to reinvent an identity of some sort, better than the cliché-ridden Hulk, just like the bus in the first image I showed, which the retreating tide of imperialism has left behind. So um, Nan is pointing out there that the post-colonial process within the UK has left Englishness sort of devoid of something. There's a vacuum at the heart of the empire. And the same uh, here from Seamus Heaney, uh, the loss of imperial power, the diminished influence of Britain inside of Europe, uh, has led to a new valuing of the native English experience. Although um, I would argue from what's happened in the referendum that that revaluation or rethinking uh, of English identity has really not progressed very far. Of course, Gordon Brown uh, talked quite a bit about Britishness. Other politicians have tried to address uh, the issue of English identity um, in a way which doesn't pander to the hard right, but it's, it's a persistent problem which has not yet been solved. Um, how has that come about? Well, I think one can see it uh, as perversely as a vulnerability at the heart of empire. Now, I'm not by any means trying to act as an apologist for empire, far from it, but uh, I think the process of empire creates changes which, which affect the sort of core of the empire in ways that perhaps we don't always consider. Um, and they ultimately, arguably, in the case of Britain, leads to the core of the empire being weakened in ways uh, which um, are now being manifest. Um, so this alienation from Britishness is a, is a complex uh, phenomenon, phenomenon and it uh, manifests in various ways. Uh, a very sort of cheap and easy way of thinking about that is to go down the road to Great Russell Street, walk past the front of the British Museum, 
British Museum, of course, famously doesn't have very much from Britain in it. Um, and uh, look at some of the souvenir shops there. So there's a Scottish souvenir shop, um, just about to see top right there. That's just uh, these are images from Google um, Street View. <clears throat> uh, the Scotch corner on the uh, corner uh, just past the VM, full of, albeit perhaps trite and stereotypical, but symbols of Scottish identity in one form or another. The other shop there, Fancy Out of London, is a more generic sort of British tourist uh, shop. Most of the stuff in there is actually, if you think about it, really symbolic of London, which is a different thing. Red buses, red phone boxes, etc., etc. If one were to think about what one would find in an English tourist shop, one might struggle to think of what would be in it. Um, there are, of course, various sort of regional traditions that come through, but uh, in terms of English symbols, uh, there are a few things, I think, to compare with the, uh, the range of uh, Scottish, Welsh, or indeed Irish, uh, sort of symbolic um, codes and, and, uh, and uh, items uh, to draw upon. And this goes back really to the point about tea, uh, and it shows that there is a transformation of British identity to become much more sort of... Um, uh, hybridized through the process of empire leading to it becoming something different to English identity but with there not really being anything much left of English identity. So that makes English identity vulnerable to feelings of alienation from the world more generally. And um, of course, like I say, these go hand in hand with other perhaps more tangible pressures to do with uh, economic factors um, and of course uh, a lot of people have talked about the relationship between globalization and Brexit in terms of the um, uh, economic transformations of areas of former heavy industry uh, or um, productive fisheries, for example, uh, across east of England, the southwest, uh, and Cornwall, and so on. But, of course, it's worth pointing out, but if globalization is also part of the story, well, again, that comes back to the British Empire, really, because the British Empire is perhaps paradigmatic of globalization uh, in the modern era. And almost all of the things that have led to where we are now in terms of the um, transfer of, of production away from uh, heavy industry in the UK to other parts of the world, these are all at the behest of uh, people and institutions involved with uh, imperial uh, administration in particularly the 19th century. So um, all of this sort of uh, process by which the centre of the empire, if you like, is hollowed out of its economic power but also its symbolic potential uh, in terms of English identity is um, part of the process of how the British Empire worked. And if nothing else, therefore, I think a point of conclusion from this is to say that to sort of invoke going back to the British Empire as a positive thing post-Brexit is absurd in lots of different ways. Obviously the British Empire was a very bad thing in lots of ways uh, in terms of colonial exploitation, but also the British Empire led us to Brexit. It cannot therefore lead us out of it. And that is um, something uh, to bear in mind, I think. <clears throat> um, so that's the sort of contemporary end of this, and I want to compare now a little bit that whole process with what goes on in the Roman Empire. 
because I would contend that this process of uh, how empires are transformed by their um, interactions beyond the sort of core state uh, at the heart of the empire to the point where that core state is made um, vulnerable to uh, sort of alienation from itself almost um, that this is a, a sort of general or there are some general principles here potentially that we can apply elsewhere uh, think about other contemporary sort of um, uh, countries with large-scale ambitions and influences but also in the past uh, various empires and imperial states <coughs> um, and uh, obviously as a Roman archaeologist for me this means the Roman Empire but one could think about this in other ways uh, with respect to other ancient empires um, so very again very briefly I'm just going to summarize here the answer to that question which is sort of yes basically this is applicable and then give a couple of case studies of how these processes work in the case of Roman Britain uh, before I come to my other conclusions. And so to summarize an even longer story than the history of the British Empire over a thousand years, so history of Rome, uh, depending on how we calculate it, lasts about 2,000 years, um, the uh, Roman Empire pretty uh, clearly is transformed in a similar way by its frontier uh, interactions. Um, indeed, uh, that is manifest quite well in the fact that Rome has an emperor. Um, so um, the political history of Rome is that most of its conquests were acquired under the republican system of government without an emperor. Only once the empire had been territorially conquered uh, did the need, if you like, for an, an emperor come to be manifest. So there's a sort of similar thing that the process of acquiring an empire transforms the centre in quite profound ways. Um, in terms of Roman identity, this is something that changes over time uh, quite profoundly. Uh, some of these are pretty obvious. Things like its religious basis transforms quite significantly from classical paganism to Christianity. Where does Christianity come from, which is characteristic of being Roman in the, uh, from the uh, 4th century AD? Well, of course, it comes from not from Rome, but from one of the fringes of the empire in Palestine. Um, now, Roman identity, like British identity, I would argue, does this job of sort of holding an empire together for a period of time because it is flexible. It's open to that kind of uh, re-interpretation um, and hybridization. Um, that is sometimes contested as change to British identity has sometimes been contested and that if you can read but in the center there there is an image of uh, a bit of text from a law code from the um, uh, fourth century prohibiting the wearing of trousers and long hair in the city of Rome these are things associated with people from the frontiers particularly the northern frontiers uh, being made illegal uh, to uh, prevent barbarian influence of course that means that that was happening anyway and the way that frontier fashions if you like become uh, widespread is shown by the statue at the top there, the Tetrarchs, four emperors at the beginning of uh, 4th century AD, dressed as uh, soldiers from the Danube frontier. Um, so this sort of transformation occurs, like I say, it can be contested by the sort of Daily Mail writers equivalent of the day, but um, these sort of reactionary forces can't stop the change that happens to Roman identity. 
Um, but then that leads to a sort of dislocation again, perhaps, between Roman identity and more specific local identities, which uh, then gradually develop their own political momentum and break away from it. And uh, that's manifest quite clearly in Britain, and I'll say a bit more about this uh, in a second. But the illustration that's quite effective for this is, uh, this is a modern statue, but Gildas is a monk who lived in Britain in the 6th century, wrote a text about the history of the British Isles, uh, and did so in Latin. He's a Christian, obviously, he's a monk, but he talks about the Romans as a foreign people who came to Britain and then left, seeing no particular connection between himself and them, even though you know, he is Roman, effectively, in lots of ways. Um, and that shows how the imperial identity can become detached from these more local uh, identities. Um, so, just a sort of prelude to briefly talking a bit about the processes that we can see archaeologically for how this happens. Um, as uh, Pete mentioned at the beginning, this um, is a sort of topical issue in the sense that border studies uh, across many disciplines has really kind of flourished recently, uh, not unrelated to the developments in the world around us, particularly since the turn of the millennium, uh, uh, but you know, across lots of different places in the world from uh, Northern Ireland and, and the Republic to uh, the um, contested border in, in uh, southern United States and Mexico. Um, border studies is really taking uh, off and some of the sort of key texts there. But uh, a lot of this material which I'm interested in applying to the ancient world does need, of course, to be calibrated somewhat to pre-modern situations in terms of both the nature of states and the nature of uh, technologies that were available, but um, I think there's a lot we can address. And uh, particularly interested in some of these points to do with how borders are um, always both connecting as well as dividing, how they are borders not just in space but also of the mind. Borders affect the consciousness of people and how they relate to different systems of thinking, if you like. Um, borders, of course, can be uh, illusory in a certain way, even when they're at the most powerful in a physical way. In fact, perhaps there's an inverse correlation, the stronger the border, the, the less confident uh, that is actually manifesting. And perhaps Trump's obsession with building a wall is, um, as I'm sure many uh, commentators have pointed out, a manifestation uh, of insecurity, perhaps rather than strength. And uh, what I'm really talking about here is the long-term effects of borders on society. So how um, things happening at the edges of uh, an entity transforms, uh, if you like, the sort of centre of that and ultimately becomes the defining feature of that uh, entity. So um, I don't want to take too long uh, about this, but I do want to illustrate briefly so that there's some sort of archaeological content here and to show you how archaeologists can go about addressing these sorts of issues uh, in ancient contexts for which there's not much of, uh, sort of written evidence. I'm just going to show a couple of illustrations of how these frontier processes work in Roman Britain. Um, so for those of you who are not so familiar with this period of British history, Roman Britain was uh, part of the empire from the uh, mid-1st century AD to the early 5th century. 
Um, it is a frontier region, if you like, uh, in lots of different ways. So I'm not, whereas earlier I was talking about sort of the core of the British Empire, here I'm talking about the periphery of the Roman Empire, but I think this shows the kinds of process uh, that is generalizable. Um, now, when one thinks about the Roman frontier in Britain, one tends to think about Hadrian's Wall in the north of England, which is the most obvious frontier. But uh, in uh, the sort of in, in the same sense, Britain also has frontiers in the Irish Sea, uh, and later on in the period of Roman occupation, also in the English Channel. There's a series of frontier forts on the southeastern coast of Britain. Um, but it's also, uh, as I say, a sort of as a whole, a frontier region of the empire at a different scale, uh, which has one of the largest sort of chunks of the Roman military based in it of any region of the whole of the empire. Uh, Britain has three legions, uh, pretty much permanently, out of a total of about 30 across the empire as a whole, so that's about 10%. Uh, and that's, you know, quite a striking uh, fact. Um, there are also other boundaries one could go into. Uh, this map shows the four provinces of Britain in the late Roman Empire. Um, Britain starts off as one province, it gets subdivided over time. That also shows how uh, frontier regions are sort of dynamic and lead to political change even within their own um, territories. So I uh, just want to show you how we can look at frontier process and how this sort of generates the kinds of uh, social and political change I'm talking about. And I'm going to do that by comparing uh, very briefly a couple of regions within Britain. So the northern frontier and the western frontier. <clears throat> the northern uh, frontier region in Britain is characterized uh, by pretty uh, significant uh, monumental architecture. So Hadrian's Wall, uh, briefly uh, the Antonine Wall further north in the mid second century. Um, there's a lot of the map at the top there shows the sort of military architecture, so the, the sort of obvious line is, is Hadrian's Wall. There's lots of forts in the hinterland of that and also some to the north of the wall. Um, to characterize it in very sort of broad terms, we've got uh, a powerful military frontier, but one which people cross. Things also move across. I'll illustrate a couple of these in a second. There is a very well-known sort of phenomenon of frontier process on the uh, non-Roman side of the border, if you like, whereby from various strands of evidence we can say that there is political centralization happening uh, in the hitherto relatively loose uh, groupings of peoples in Scotland, as we now call it, um, over time sort of coalescing into stronger political units. Uh, this often happens on the edges of empires. <clears throat> There's also, though, regional differences within the frontier zone, which are interesting and perhaps significant later on. And uh, it's also worth thinking about how the military operates as part of this. The Roman military is by no means a homogenous organization. It has variation within it. Uh, military culture is one of the strongest sort of cultural forces in the empire as a whole, but it is also influenced by where soldiers are living. And again, this is part of the process of frontiers. Frontiers tend to be militarized. Uh, militaries change because of that, and of course militaries are often very deeply embedded in state structures. Indeed, in the Roman Empire, the Roman state is pretty much the Roman military because there isn't a massive um, sort of civil service or, or bureaucracy uh, apart from that. So just to show a couple of pictures that illustrate those points, the, the wall uh, 
I'm sure you're all familiar with some pictures of it. Uh, this is a reconstruction of the wall at uh, Wall's End, Sagadino. This is the original wall line the reconstruction there. Powerful barrier, um, much like the kinds of things being envisaged for the southern US uh, and uh, that are, are hopefully being sought to be avoided in Ireland. Um, but, you know, the kinds of things that one sees being built in other parts of Europe, uh, even as we speak. <clears throat> uh, there's been a lot of debate about the function of the wall, um, whether it's really meant to be a preclusive barrier. It has gateways every mile, uh, small fortlets on the wall. Uh, there's debate about whether these are, are built to a plan that was never um, sort of fully thought through, because some of them, like this one at Marcos 37, open over a 30-foot cliff. So obviously not actually intended to be used. Uh, so there's a sense there of, of a blueprint that is being followed without um, local uh, application, shall we say. Quite a lot of these gates are also blocked up later in the Roman period. So the sort of permeability of even pretty obvious physical barriers is quite an interesting thing. Um, there's also uh, evidence increasingly for these things at quite a lot of places along the wall. So these are obviously child-safe uh, versions of what would have been in, in antiquity, much spikier bits of wood, uh, the kinds of things, again, that you know evoke the many layers of barbed wire and so on that, that uh, certain modern barriers like the Berlin Wall have had. Uh, again, sort of giving a suggestion of, of projection of power and of strong military defence. There's also, again, long-standing debate in Roman archaeology really about the meaningfulness of the barrier in, in sort of a broader economic and cultural sense. Uh, and more evidence is appearing, actually, that does show it was quite significant. So to the south of the wall, we have, uh, there's definitely a hinterland, but um, as one goes further south, a Roman landscape of towns and quite developed uh, farmsteads, villas, as we call them, like the one there at Stockton-on-Tees at the bottom right. Uh, to the north, these things don't really occur. We get native farmsteads um, of uh, pre-Roman sort of pre types continuing. But actually, evidence increasingly from a site like Blagden Park there uh, of native settlement being cleared to the north of the wall for a certain distance. So again, powerful boundary which involved dislocation and movement of people. Um, at the same time, there's evidence for the crossing of boundaries. Um, just to, uh, uh, the, these are sort of what I've just been talking about is at the kind of broader scale of the landscape. At the level of individual forts, which, uh, which the wall has uh, quite a few along its length. The fort walls are also a, a boundary, obviously, and those are being maintained up until the end of the Roman occupation. New towers and, and earthworks being attached, for example. But we also have lots of evidence for the way the fort walls are permeable. Uh, the plan on the right shows coin distributions indicating market exchange activity within the fort at Newcastle. That must have involved more people than just soldiers. Uh, this site down the bottom here, the Praetorium, uh, the officer's um, house at Binchester, shows uh, lots of evidence for large-scale communal feasting being uh, a major um, sort of late Roman phenomenon which takes over from its use as a bathhouse. That, again, has been argued to suggest people from beyond the fort walls coming in, it's all a big sort of community uh, interacting together. And uh, going back up to sort of broader scale, in terms of things crossing the wall, uh, there's loads of evidence for Roman material in the north, uh, this is some of them 
uh, particularly coins, uh, but other kinds of metalwork, uh, all the way up to Orkney and Shetland. Other forms of material culture develop around the wall zone, things like certain brooch styles shown on the right there, uh, which are you know, found both north and south and particularly on the frontier. So all of this is indicating mixing, crossing, hybridity and interchange. And then within the frontier, if you like, uh, sort of at a different angle of perspective, there's this phenomenon I mentioned of variation uh, within the military that's supposedly uniformly garrisoning the wall. So bottom right here, uh, this is one style of belt fitting uh, dress uh, equipment for soldiers that we find a lot more in the East and in the West. And these are variations within that military. So there's a lot of evidence for the way the boundary is crossed. And these are the kinds of processes that generate um, the cultural changes, which at the bigger scale have an impact on the empire. Just briefly to compare that with the Western frontier in the RSC. So it's a different kind of frontier. Rome has <clears throat> many different sorts of frontiers around its, its uh, territory. Obviously, there isn't a big wall here. There is instead the Irish Sea. But also there is a network of forts in Wales, much like in the north, although a bit more dispersed. But as in the north, we have evidence for people crossing the sea, for uh, material crossing the sea. Some similarities and differences with the military community in the north. And also some specific new developments. And uh, I'll briefly mention the emergence of uh, the Irish script, Oem script, which emerges at the end of the Roman period uh, in a second. In terms of those, the more kind of concrete types of boundary, the um, uh, Western garrison is smaller than that in the north, but it certainly keeps active until the late Roman period. So there are forts uh, maintained across Wales, new forts added like at Cardiff in the late Roman period, and uh, a few other small fortlets added uh, in northwest Wales, so this is a probable late Roman fort on Anglesey. Um, and uh, this is a sort of uh, indication of continued military uh, occupation of Wales, which is facing uh, that Irish sea zone. But it's a military which is a little bit different to that based elsewhere in Britain. Again, those dress fittings, the belt fittings shown on the right there, uh, across the whole of the um, mainland, um, showing a big gap really where Wales is, and that suggests that the military community in Wales has a distinctive character. So again, that sort of internal frontier. But in terms of things crossing the Irish Sea, again, as in Scotland, lots of evidence of Roman finds in Ireland. Uh, again, there's an interesting history. Roman finds in Ireland haven't always received much attention because of the obvious sort of parallels one might draw with more recent colonization and colonialism uh, in Ireland. Um, but these finds are increasingly being recognized. Again, what they indicate, simply trade or movement of people, is always a bit uh, ambiguous. But there's evidence for uh, probably quite a major trading post at uh, Dramana um, near Dublin. Uh, and uh, the contact across the RFC goes both ways, and a good manifestation of that is the uh, phenomenon of Oem stones, which uh, you can see an example at the top right there. Um, some bilingual with Latin inscriptions, which emerge in the late Roman period and are found particularly in Southern Ireland and in South uh, Western Wales. But the Silchester example there, Silchester is, uh, is near Reading, so they do make it quite far east in uh, England.
Now, what's interesting about this, actually, is the fact that um, uh, Roman inscriptions in Wales are pretty uncommon. Uh, it's very restricted to a few civic and military contexts, really. But then, at the end of the Roman period, people decide that writing is quite handy or useful or interesting, and they start doing it. And they develop a new script for doing it <clears throat> in the RSC zone. Uh, maybe similar to the influence of uh, writing on uh, Scandinavian culture with runic uh, alphabet developing. Um, again, sort of perhaps fairly common uh, frontier zone uh, process. So, um, to sum up, uh, between these two frontiers we've got some common features of exchanges across the boundary, of uh, the military culture evolving over time, uh, of some of those frontier phenomena, particularly metalwork styles in this case, spreading more widely across Roman Britain, so influencing the whole of the province. And perhaps these relate to the kind of imperial identity of the late antique period, late Roman period, uh, which is open to novelty. Um, on the other hand, there are quite strong sort of regional patterns of material, specific types of, of, of objects uh, and symbols. Um, there are the sort of reinvention of selected things, so writing in the West happening that doesn't really happen in the North, Pictish, uh, North British uh, iconography does develop, but it doesn't develop into a writing system in the same way as, as Owen does. Um, so these are quite localised phenomena that must relate to more specific local identities, and which may be defined by certain ideas about tradition, even if those are somewhat um, sort of reinvented or, or revitalised traditions. So, <clears throat> uh, this brief overview of these processes in Britain shows, I think, that um, in Roman Britain we can see um, some of the cultural processes that would have occurred in frontier provinces across the empire, whether we're talking about um, Morocco or Egypt or uh, Palestine or uh, the Danubian provinces. And um, what's happening in these uh, situations is that the border phenomenon, the boundary making and the boundary crossing, the interaction of different groups of people in different positions of power, have uh, local significance in generating particular cultures in those regions. They also, though, have an effect on the sort of macro level trans-imperial identity, the Roman identity in this case. But as they do so, and in order to keep up with that process, Romanness becomes increasingly detached from what's happening in the city of Rome in this case. Uh, parallel to what's going on between British and English identity in the other case. And these then lead to a weakening of the symbolic language, if you like, of empire, um, just as uh, also opening up to uh, vulnerability to political change and fragmentation. Um, to wrap up, my final slide shows uh, how this all relates back to what I was talking about in the beginning, to do with the vulnerability of the academy and of, of our expert knowledge about the past. Now, of course, all of what I've talked about is my interpretation of some disparate uh, material in the Roman case, <clears throat> uh, and my politically informed view, I suppose, of what's been going on in the last um, two years, but also the last few hundred years of British history more recently. Um, the reason I think it's worth looking at cases like the Roman Empire is to understand from a different perspective how 
long-term social processes and cultural processes happen, uh, how uh, phenomena at different scales interlock, um, and uh, contribute to what we think we're doing now and how these things might play out in the future. But one of the interesting things about archaeology is, uh, as I, I think trying to, uh, well, uh, one of the interesting things about archaeology is how a lot of the received understandings that people have about the past and how it relates to contemporary issues like membership or not of the European Union are based on previous generations of history and archaeology. And so that stereotypical person interested in, in archaeology that I showed you earlier uh, has perhaps learned about um, Romans or Britons or whatever at school, is still interested, still reads popular books, that's all obviously fine, uh, but there are received understandings of what was going on that are perhaps out of date in other respects. And of course archaeologists in some ways are to blame for this because archaeology is intimately linked with the emergence of nationalism and in relation to colonialism in the 19th century. Archaeologists and historians came up with ideas about the Celts and the Romans and the Britons and the Saxons, which are still politically powerful because those ideas are pretty hard to shift. And uh, archaeologists, uh, either directly or indirectly, have been complicit in the past in quite a lot of dubious enterprises. And uh, the most well-studied example, I suppose, is the association of archaeology and uh, National Socialism in Germany in the 20s and 30s, uh, when archaeology was sort of implicated in justifying aspects of Nazi um, theory. So obviously all of that stuff is to be avoided, but and we have to learn lessons from that. But at the same time, we have to accept that the past is political and the past is vulnerable to political manipulation. And we have to think about where we stand because, um, and this is where I suppose I, I would argue for ownership of the politics of the past and uh, not seeking to deny it. Um, the past is vulnerable because symbols from the past can be manipulated in different ways. And these two pictures here show uh, that in microcosm. So uh, the top of those photos there, this is an increasingly studied field, I should say. The uh, top image there shows um, the title of a session at last year's European Archaeological Association meeting about archaeology and the resurgent far right in Europe, because um, this debate is happening across uh, Europe. Particularly Scandinavia, Hungary, and Poland, uh, uh, all, of course, as in Western Europe, all countries where the far right in one form or another is mobilizing again. The uh, two other images show the Battle of Hastings, 1066, being mobilized by the now banned far right um, uh, National Action Group, and the central image there, whose banner, which you can't perhaps read, but that banner says Spirit of 1066, so the idea of Saxonism as a sort of defiant uh, identity being owned by the far right. Uh, bottom image there from a pro-European march, um, Hastings European since 1066. So flipping the valence of that event, you know, the Battle of Hastings, the Normans arrived, that's all part of the melting pot of British identity. Well, of course, I agree with the bottom uh, image, not with the other one, but the point is that a single event in the past can be politicised in either way, for the far right or for the uh, progressive pro-European movement. 
So it's up to um, archaeological expertise, I think, to weigh in on this, to accept that the past is political and it is vulnerable to manipulation, but to argue more strongly about where the evidence points uh, than perhaps uh, we have in the past. So on that note, I will uh, finish and thank you for listening. <laughs>
Um, but uh, yeah, the, that, the forts become sort of more important. The wall fabric itself probably becomes fairly uh, uh, gradually you know, sort of in disrepair and, and, and robbed and, and so on. Um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, certainly there, is, there, is, there are connections between military strength in Britain and other frontier uh, regions and what's going on in them. So I suppose another example of that would be that the conquest of Scotland was arrested because of problems in um, the southern German frontier that led to troops being pulled out of Britain. And this sort of thing is always, always going on. Um, and I suppose maybe the war was an attempt to stabilise that a bit. But as I say, it's, you know, it changes very quickly. Okay, thank you. So I just, I'll open up. Do you want to sit down? So yeah, some sure. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, I've got someone um, at the back and then Alison. So just in the back first. Sorry, it's not necessary. Did you oh, sorry. Thank Thanks, Alan. Okay. So the question, um, what, the question was, um, what is it about maybe the Roman Empire which has led to people understanding later empires, such as the British Empire, or more recently the American Empire, as it might be called by some, um, to, 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 to draw analogies with the Roman Empire, or, or even for those empires to identify themselves with the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. and also with empires prior to that, such as the Egyptian kind of empires, and prior to that even. Thanks. Mm. Yeah, um, it's tricky to perform comparisons between uh, modern and ancient imperialism because there is a historical connection. They're not independent phenomena. And as you say, um, certainly the British Empire emulated or sought to emulate the Roman Empire quite profoundly, as did all, pretty much all other of the European empires um, of the 18th, 19th centuries. Um, so it's sort of hard to, yeah, you know, how those ideas really, whether they're really as influential as people claimed at the time um, or not is interesting. Uh, I mean, I think, though, that there's something sort of a deeper level of process going on here that is, is sort of independent of that. But um, the Roman Empire has become pretty kind of paradigmatic above and beyond all other empires, at least in Western thinking, and every other state has sought to emulate it. It's interesting, though, what bits of Roman history people pick. So the British imperialists of the 19th century were interested mainly in the Roman Republic, the period when the empire was being built, but which had a at least pretense of some sort of democratic involvement, which was obviously um, sort of uh, considered ideal. Uh, not so many people are drawn to the later imperial period of, of strong sort of autocracy uh, and, uh, and militarized rule. Um, so, yeah, there's sort of quite a selective approach. But the symbols of Rome are powerful in a lot of the symbolic language of empire, and you know, you only have to go down to Whitehall to see the architectural manifestations of that and the statues to certain figures from Roman history, even like Boudicca, which is another interesting case. Um, but yeah, the connections are pretty powerful. Thanks. Thank you, Alec. 
Thank you. I wanted to ask if you perceive this as a departure from some of the orthodoxy of post-colonial theory, maybe the most important orthodoxy, which is the, the sort of Saidian, there is no West without the East. The periphery is central to identity in the center, whereas you seem to be arguing that actually the periphery is responsible for a sort of leeching potential and a vulnerability of identity at the center. So I wanted to ask, is that something that you perceive as a departure? If so, what's at stake in that? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, I think I'm, hmm, it's a work in progress, really, about where that leads. And I'm a little worried about some of the places it could lead and keen to avoid that. I mean, I think certainly the, yes, there is always a sort of um, at least dyadic, if not more multifaceted relationship. You can't, that's also part of the bordering process that, that an entity is always defined in relation to something else that never exists in a pure form. And so from the beginning of any empire building process, whatever is going to become the core uh, is defined in relation to, first that's what I was saying in terms of England initially being defined in relation to Wales and Scotland and Ireland as those identities or, or uh, groupings themselves came into being. Um, but what I think is interesting is how, I suppose, where I think it leads us to do with what we think of as post-colonial processes happening also in the centre of the colonised or the, the colonial state. That's really the kind of key thing. That the identity transformation happens everywhere. Uh, the dynamics of it is variable. Um, the uh, it's not just that the the West cannot exist without the East, it's that the West is transformed by the East and vice versa, and um, obviously there are political imbalances for a lot of that relationship, but um, as imperial identities form, I think it's inevitable that they become complicated by that process, and the local identities of the sort of core then also become um, problematic in relation to that core identity. So, um, yeah, it's simply to sort of think about that in the heart of the empire. Um, but that's something I still need to think about more. <laughs> okay, there are other indications? Let me have another go. I, I had lots of things when you were talking, but um, I suppose one of the things we've been um, thinking about is, the, is is in this series. I mean, if I can sort of widen it out in terms of the the, the kind of vulnerability, and it, this kind of relates to Alison's question, I think, is. What's vulnerability? How does it relate? How does it relate to whether it's to be kind of marginalised or victimhood or something? And I think yeah. one of the things we're talking about here is <clears throat> where vulnerable, well, you, you can be privileged or relatively privileged, and yep. um, and and sort of vulnerable at the same time. Um, and I think that's something that that we see in. Um, you know, one could argue in relation to the Trump phenomenon in the mm. in the um, uh, in, in the United in the United States, 
Um, and, and I think that there's, there's you know, arguments that, that around elements of, of Brexit. So, I mean, is it, is your argument that, because that, I wasn't, I mean, this hollowing out, it, 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 is it that um, the consequences of empire have, were uneven and destructive even within the core state of the, of the, the, the empire itself? Or is it that um, the loss of empire therefore provokes a response where people are trying to defend something of, 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 of what they see sort of vanishing or, or disappearing? Um, hmm. That's a bit of both of those. I mean, that's a good point, though. It's sort of, um, in a way, and yes, to answer Alison's question a bit further, that, that part of what this is directed at is trying to understand why persistently in the world today there is what appears to be a bogus feeling of vulnerability by quite a lot of, let's face it, middle-aged, often, and up white men. Why do they feel vulnerable when, to all outside observers, they are still the most privileged group of people in lots of different countries? Uh, and I definitely wouldn't like to see myself as sort of an apologist for that group, particularly, but uh, to understand why that's happening is sort of important, I think, in order to try and deal with it. And certainly when it is leading to a mis- um, misattribution by those people of where that feeling of vulnerability comes from. And so my point, I suppose, in this particular case is that to blame the EU for all of that ill feeling is just totally wrong. And that actually you've got to look closer to home and what, ironically, and this is what it's really all about, what ironically those sort of massively stereotype, what those sorts of people are most uh, interested in, which is a nostalgia for the period, which is actually the period which led to where they are, if you see what I mean. So it's sort of, it is literally ironic, it is massively, massively ironic that most of the things that sort of stereotype, that people who are angry about the EU or angry about um, the things that Trump supporters are angry about, uh, they lay the blame at the wrong door. They have to look at the things they actually love and self-enhance. Um, and, yeah, also, I suppose, I think that the idea that imperial domination for all its uh, beyond all of its self-evident, hopefully, um, problems, doesn't do anyone any, any favours, including the people who sort of seem to be the, seem to be, the, and in many ways are, economically, uh, historically, beneficiaries of it. Um, so we have to find other ways of, you know, dealing with international relations. And again, to be specific about Brexit, I have believed and still believe that the European Union is a good model of a way of dealing with internationalism that is not imperialistic. Um, because we've got to find a way to avoid both nationalism and colonialism. And uh, the danger of slippage into those is powerful. So yeah, I think um, that's where it's directed. Does anyone want to quickly ask anything before we, we, we are going to have to move out of here? I'm, I'm, I'm dying to ask about, because obviously the narrative of many of the Brexiteers is, is, is that Britain is escaping from out of um, imperial domination, that, right. which is what you ended yeah, up Yeah, that's, that's how Rome gets used in both, that's particularly interesting in 
what some of these uh, colleagues in the Ancient Identity Project were looking at is that in the debates before and after the referendum on social media, so public social media fora, for Remainers, Rome is an example of a benevolent multicultural empire, a bit like the European Union, uh, multicultural entity, a bit like the European Union. For um, Leavers, it's an evil empire which oppressed the British and like Boudicca, we should lead a revolution against it. And so the, the fact that previous historical or uh, archaeological um, phenomena can be used on both sides of the debate is interesting, possibly inevitable. So part of this is thinking about what we do about that, because if the result well, it is increasingly evident that the results of archaeological research that are coming out now are instantly politicised. So, in the last, in 2018, you know, we've had several stories: Chelman, um, uh, the uh, there's been quite a big story about the Beaker migration to Britain in earlier in prehistory. Uh, stories about migration, basically, which is a topic archaeologists are always interested in, are now inevitably politicised. I mean, in a way they always were, but it's all happening very quickly now. So as experts, we have to decide what we're doing about that. Are we going out there, and I suppose I think this is what we should be doing, and saying, yes, migration happens, it's always happened. There is no such thing as a pure, you know, um, grouping of identity. Um, but if we do that, it's in the expectation that some people will say, well, that, that, that evidence is wrong or is being misinterpreted and so how we deal with that kind of instant backlash of judgment from what is perceived to be politicized work because it is politicized work mm. um, you know where that leaves us being able to say well yes it is political but it's also true that's the interesting question um, and yeah uh, things can always be inter <coughs> interpreted in different ways <coughs> um, but so yeah okay um, I don't see anyone else so thank you very much for that we have to get out of this room very shortly anyway so so, but please do come just a couple of doors down to, to um, G17 um, and we, there's some wine there and some, some soft drinks and, and um, some nibbles and things and, and but before we do that let's um, please uh, say thank you to, to Andrew for the stuff thank you